This is the Revolution in Ideology podcast. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. In this episode, we're going to do something a little different. We've never actually done an episode like this before, so we're trying something new. We're going to talk about a film, actually, which is something that Jared and I have discussed the possibility of doing for a while. We talk about films amongst ourselves all the time. But uh, yeah, we decided to try it on the podcast. So anything before we get started? No, this will be this will be something new for us. We usually talk history, ideology, sociology, revolutionary theory, those kinds of things. Um, so going into the pop culture atmosphere is going to be a little bit new for us. We want to stress this: this isn't going to be like a movie review, or even like we're not going to be like critics or critique the film or the art style or anything like that. We just want to talk about the narrative and the perceived message that uh, the director is trying to get across. All right. You want to do the synopsis or you want me to? Oh, I do want to start this by saying there's going to be clear spoilers. If you haven't seen the film, we're going to talk about it in depth. So Yeah, yeah, I'll reiterate that. Massive spoiler alert. So the film in question here, of course, is it just released uh, yesterday on Netflix. It is the uh, Spanish film, The Platform, produced in uh, 2019, or El Hoyo. Um, it is listed under horror, sci-fi, thriller. I don't know that it qualifies for those. I mean, it's pretty grotesque in certain, certain spots, but I don't know that it's scary. Um, sci-fi for sure. And maybe a little bit of a thriller, but I don't know about horror. What Mm -hmm. do you think? No, I agree. Yep. Uh, so as far as the synopsis is concerned, um, I guess I'll try and be as succinct as possible before we talk about it um, in depth, the themes that we want to really pick out of here. But uh, it is in some sort of dystopian future where there is an organization called basically the administration, and it is running this society, and they have created this uh this structure this prison for lack of a better term i don't i, I want to say it's a prison but our main character actually goes in voluntarily so i don't know exactly how you might find yourself there besides volunteering or there were a couple of people characters we meet that committed crimes as well i i, I guess i just the purpose of this building is not fully fleshed out in the film but i think that's actually good i think that was a good uh strategy by the filmmakers or the the writers in this case uh david desola um to to keep the the audience kind of wondering why this thing exists. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think it's supposed to be a secret. We'll talk about it a little bit later on of whether it's a prison or not. In the film, they definitely allude to it's kind of a prison. But yeah, it's a mystery, basically, of what this is. I think this is part of the kind of sci-fi aspect of it. We don't really know. And we don't even know what its full purpose is. I mean, part part of me thinks it's like rehabilitation. Maybe it's training. That Those things are kind of alluded to in some of the dialogue as the film goes on. But regardless, let's keep moving here. This structure is, at the bare minimum, to the best of my estimation, about 333 floors tall, maybe a little taller because there's some floors up at the top for like administrators or whatever. But on each of these floors exists two prisoners. And these prisoners uh, stay on one floor for one month. And then they are rotated what seems like randomly the next month to different floors. Yeah, that was actually one of my questions on whether it was random or what. I think in the film, it's supposed to be, it's alluded to that it's random, but yeah. Yeah, maybe it's their behavior, but I don't Mm -hmm. think so. It does really feel random based on, like, the behavior of the characters. Anyway, they're rotated up and down these floors uh, every month. And as long as your cellmate stays alive, you pretty much stay with the same cellmate. Although, again, as you might imagine in this film, cellmates don't don't stay alive all that often. (laughs) 
But but moving forward, the thing that's kind of interesting here is that uh, our main character is is introduced and he finds himself um, with uh, another character, and it's there that we get the exposition, so to speak, from the the existing prisoner to that basically gives us the audience an understanding of how this this system works. Um, anyway, the. The main thing that I want to drive at here is that the floor rotation is actually tied to a more important um, structure, literally the platform. There's a platform that uh, essentially contains all of the food for the entire prison, and it goes up and down almost like a, an elevator through the middle of every cell. Yeah, every cell has a giant square hole in the floor. So you can see down to the floor below you and up to the floor above you and so on. You can see all the way to the bottom, but it's so far you can't really see what's down there. But yeah, every cell, every level has a giant square hole in the floor. And the table uh, or the platform is basically a table. And again, it contains all the food. So at the very top, there are these amazing chefs and they're preparing the best meal that anyone's ever seen. And the, the, the platform then goes down to the first floor and the prisoners on the first floor eat what they can within a, an allotted amount of time. That, that amount of time I don't think is ever really. No, discussed. it is two minutes. Oh, it is. It's yeah, two minutes. Two minutes oh, okay. at every level. Yep. So then it goes down to the next floor and they, the second floor gets as much as they can and so on and so forth. But if you're doing the math and those of you that have probably already seen the film, that by the time it starts getting into the 50s, 60s, 70th floor, there's not very much food left. So the goal, if there is a goal, not that you can really affect change in this organ in this building, but the goal is to be on one of the higher floors and that way you eat because that's all you get to eat is whatever is left on the platform. As you might imagine, and the lower you get, the more creative you have to get with acquiring some sort of sustenance. And this is where the film gets a little bit grotesque. Um, again, we already warned about spoilers, but you know, things like cannibalism, those begin to take place the lower down you get. Suicide would be another thing that, that is common um, in this uh, on the platform. What do you think? Yeah, um, I think a couple of other things no one actually knows how many floors there are so like people they talk to like he's been on whatever the 50th floor and the sixth floor and like so on but nobody knows how far it actually goes down so like jared said the food starts at the top and goes down every floor two minutes at every floor by the time you get down to like the 50s there's basically no food left so if you're on those bottom x number of floors um you have to figure out how to survive basically for 30 days without food um, yeah, I guess the story basically falls our, follows our protagonist. What's his name? Do you have it there? I yeah, remember. I was about to go through like the, the, the main characters oh, okay, we were about yep. to get into. So our main character, the, the, the gentleman that, uh, actually volunteered to enter into this building because he was getting, um, a diploma. After six months of serving in here, he got some sort of diploma. It's not discussed what kind of diploma it is. Yeah, they mentioned this a few times, like an accredited diploma, but we don't really know yeah, what that means. Yeah, it's not means. collegiate. It's not yeah. high school. These are all like grown up, grown adults. Uh, some I actually have a theory on this, but we'll talk about that later. Okay. So he enters in voluntarily for six months to get this accredited diploma. Anyway, our main character, his name is Goreng. And um, we'll talk more about his character as we kind of uh, uh, move from synopsis to analysis. But our main character is a volunteer um, named Goreng. He then, his first cellmate is an older man who is um, stuck there because he killed somebody, uh, in theory by accident if we buy his story, but he did kill somebody and he was sentenced to a year. He's an older man named Tir Magasi who is like a great, 
his character juxtaposes the main one very well in terms of like the conflict, but also kind of getting along that they will have and teaching uh, Goreng how to survive in this prison. The next character that is important is Imagueri, and uh, excuse my pronunciation on that, but she is, uh, at the beginning of the film, the receptionist that more or less accepts people into the the prison that are applying to get in there, and uh, unfortunately, she later finds herself in the prison itself for circumstances we'll probably flesh out in the analysis. She actually goes involuntarily, too. Well, yeah, but because... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'll get to that. Yeah. She does go involuntarily. Um, one of the later characters we meet is kind of a heroic figure named Baharat. Um, he will be, I think, Goreng's like third cellmate. Um, and then the other, the last character that we really want to mention is Miharu, who is another, uh, uh, cellmate who is looking for a lost child in the prison. And, uh, and she is, uh, She's quite violent, but she's also a very interesting character um, that I think uh, exposes us to um, some themes that we want to bring out in the analysis of what happens um, when when you're living in a society like this and the people around you don't trust you and they don't believe you. Um, and again, you're kind of stuck always banging your head against a wall or swimming upstream, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I think she's the real mystery in the whole thing. So anyway, um, that's like the brief synopsis. Um, now, oh, we'll- one other thing that's key is that according to the story, everyone gets to bring one item into mm. the whatever the prison with them. So our title character, he chooses to bring a copy of Don Quixote, which is interesting, right? And I his think first there's meaning cellmate, there. Yeah, for yeah. sure. His first cellmate. What's his name again? Trimagasi. Uh, Trimagasi. He brings a knife, a Samurai Plus is what it's yeah, called. He Samurai buys it Plus. off the like home shopping channel, but it sharpens itself every time it's used in theory, right? Is the spiel. So that's what he brings with him. And that plays an important role as well as do all of the other things. Yeah. The most heartbreaking one is when the receptionist who volunteers to go in, Imogueri brings her, her Dotson, her mm-hmm. wiener dog, which again, you're already halfway through the film when this, when this dog is revealed and you already know what's yep. gonna, like, you already know that this mm-hmm. is not going to go well for the dog. So yeah. that's, that's, that's a rough introduction. You know, right away. Yeah. Um, that this is going to be pulling on the heartstrings, so to speak. Um, but yes, this idea that you can bring like anything you want in. And I then mean, and then later in the film, we see like one dude has a samurai sword and one like we see different things. That yeah, there's like a bathtub in one, like a, yes, like I mean, a blow up bathtub. Pool, yeah. <laughs> a surfboard I saw in one of the yeah. cells for some reason. Anyway, like what you bring in actually is important because I think, again, the writer and the director here uh, are looking to um, build like into like each of their characters, like Values. They're trying to build in build in values. In case we didn't mention, I mentioned the writer David Desola. The director is Galder uh, Gastelu uh, Rutia. Excuse my pronunciation there. Rutia. We'll go yeah, with that. Anyway. So, uh, again, super brief synopsis there, and there'll be more like summation and probably spoilers, spoilers as we dig into the actual like analysis. The reason we're if you haven't making- seen it, yeah, I would suggest go watch it first. If you're never going to watch it, then cool, proceed. Yeah, yeah. But now we really want to dig into why we're making this episode. It's not to provide a summary of, of a Spanish film. It's it's to really dig into what the director is, is attempting to say about us here in the modern world. And I So think that's, the that's first thing before we dive into actually analysis of the film that I found super interesting before I even started the film, and then as I was watching it, like it kind of came to me like, I think it's hilarious the translation of titles from Spanish films into English 
because they're not actual translations. They're completely different like words, right? Like what is the money house, right? What it's, it's money, money, Casa del Papel, yeah, right? Money house. house of paper. Yeah. But in the English, it's called the money house, right? Like why? But this one is super interesting, even more interesting than that, because in Spanish, it's el hoyo, which is the hole. In English, it's the platform, which is the platform. I just think there's something incredible there that the Spanish focuses on the hole, on the void, and the English focuses on the thing that fills the void, which is like, says everything you need to know about like American society. Well, does it? I want, like, I yeah. want your thoughts on that. What does it say about us when we're we, so when, focused on continuously trying to fill the void and consume? Yes. I mean, that's exactly. what this is about is nonstop consumption, getting your fill before this thing moves on. Um, the one who, uh, the one who dies with the most stuff wins. That yeah. kind of attitude is, is real present. And um, you can on this never platform. sate yourself. Right. Every day the platform comes and you have to eat like every single day. Right. You're insatiable. And it yep. is. It's kind of like uh, it's both classical and operate conditioning you see uh, throughout this film. So, yep. yeah. Anyway. OK. Uh, where do we start? We're going to have to start, I think, with the obvious, which is that this is kind of like a metaphor for inequality in society. Although it's so boring because it's so just in your face. But we'll start with that and then we'll go into some more, I think, other maybe more interesting analyses. But Clearly, this is, like I said, an analogy of class stratification, I think, and inequality in society. In fact, when he first gets in the cell, the his cellmate, uh, he starts talking to the people at the floor below him, and his cellmate says, don't talk to them. And he says, why? And he says, because they're below. And that's the only reason that he gives, right? So automatically, these people below them have stigmatization, even though they're randomly just put in the floor directly below them. Right. And he won't, uh, when he tries to talk to the people above him, um, again, his cellmate basically clearly says, they won't talk to you. Um, and then when the first platform arrives and he's learning how this whole thing works, he sees, of course, the cellmate stuffing his face as disgustingly as possible, like eating as much as he can. Um, and uh, eventually, maybe it's the second or third go around, he picks out an apple um, and uh, he decides, hey, man, like, you know, I can just, you know, hold on to this. But you can't save food either. That's, yeah, another- that's actually the first, very first one, because he refuses to eat when the platform comes the first time. And he grabs an apple and his cellmate says, what's that for? And he says, I'll save it for later. And he like puts it in his pocket. Then it starts to get super cold in the cell. No, super hot in the cell. And his cellmate tells him, you're not allowed to keep food. You either get hot. They either make the cell hot or cold until you die unless you put the food back. So there's a clear lesson there, I think, in that this individual only taking one apple and trying to be, quote unquote, frugal and um, more or less forward thinking rather Mm -hmm. than looking at the immediacy, the short term gratification and looking at kind of playing the long game. That's already discouraged here, which, again, I think our writer and director are are insinuating is basically capitalism 101. It is all about short-term mass consumption. Must consume now in a very short, limited period of time. And the resources, in theory, only last a short period of time. And we have to consume them now. You can't save for later and so on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Agreed. I think that's one of the, the earlier lessons, uh, tied to, of course, this class stratification. And then, of course, we get to this point where, um, he, uh, basically, uh, I think it's on the second or third day, perhaps, our main character, Gorend, uh, does call out to the people below him again and tries to create, just real briefly, some sort of solidarity mm-hmm. with them. Like, hey, we'll do this if you do this. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll ration a little bit if you ration, and then you get the people below you to ration, you get the people below you to ration so that we can all survive. And, of course, his cellmate says, no, don't do that. And rather than fulfilling the agreement, he does end up just 
taking a piss down on the people below him as like this very symbolic, like if you're above, then you are allowed to, yeah, literally in this case, piss on people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So definitely class stratification there. Well, I thought it was interesting too, his initial resistance to participating in the system. Like I said, on the first day, he refuses to eat. The second day, he refuses to eat. It's only on the third day that he actually acquiesces and eats food off of the platform. What level did they start on? I have it written down here. Level 48. So it's a mess. It's not, he says it even in the film, right? It's 94 people's leftovers, I think he says, um, that they're having to scrounge through. And it's disgusting, obviously. And oh, it's not till day three that he actually participates and eats the food. So I think that the point is, even if you want to resist, even if you don't want to participate, you have no choice. Right. And, and, and in these first three days, again, the conversation takes place between him and Goreng and, and Tyr Magassi as Goreng is trying to explain like, hey, we could all get through this super easily if we all just like, again, ration and communicate. And of course, Tyr Magassi, again, the, the old man that's been there for a while, accuses him of being a communist. Like that's the first thing that comes right out of yep. his mouth. You must be a communist. He literally like talks the, the, our main character to the people above him and says like, why don't you just eat what you need? There's plenty of food to go down. And literally his cellmate is like, are you a communist? Like, yeah, I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. So, but I think that's one of those things that's also important that, again, the director and and the writers were after is when when Nick and myself um, teach, we usually teach under the, the basic guise that there is a pyramid in most societies. And without going through all the tiers of the pyramid, the bottom of our our, our, our pyramid in every society is some form of labor class. And one of the things that all people on upper echelons of the pyramid in all societies do is make sure that labor class itself is fractured so they never really coalesce into some sort of organized movement. They find different ways to fracture them. Sometimes it's ideological through, uh, you know, whatever, race or religion or gender or whatever. Or other times it's actual, like, material fracturing. And in this case, that's what we see. It is a material fracture fracture, um, separation of floors, floors being representative of class, class being representative of what you're allowed to eat, etc. So here it is. These, these, let's say there is 333 levels, which was my count. There's 666 people in here, um, which now that I think Well, technically that, there's 334 because there's a level zero, but they get to the bottom and it's okay. 333. Yeah. Okay. Regardless. There's, zero is where the food gets, the kitchen is and the food gets put on the platform yeah. and so on. Yeah. There's 600 plus people in here. Again, if they organized and found a way to work together and used all the tools that each of them brought in, I bet there is a way for all 600 people to probably make their way up to level zero or maybe just have enough food to last out each of their terms, whatever. There, there are definitely ways to work together, and they all just refuse to. There is mm-hmm. just nonstop violence. So, and they make it. They mention, they estimate, because he's thinking about jumping at one point to the next level below. And I think they said it was like seven to nine meters or something. So it's clearly designed where you maybe could survive the fall, but probably not, right? So they make moving between levels incredibly difficult. Interestingly, too, one of the first things that is said by the cellmate when he wakes up on his floor is stay on your side of the cell. So built into this system is also competition at the same level. So it's not just that the levels clearly are different and they're stratified in that way, but on the same level, in the same cell, they're motivated to compete with one another. Because let's be blunt, if on day one you kill your cellmate, you get double rations for the rest of the month. Right. Not only that, but if you happen to be on level, you know, 250, 300, where the food never makes it, it never makes it that far down, this is where you have your emergency food ration in the form of your cellmate. Yep. Um, and that is is not discouraged. It seems like it's actually encouraged. In, in fact, the, the, in the second structure. sort of act, I guess, 
in the movie is when they move to the next level, him and his cellmate, and they wake up on level 171, and our title character wakes up, and he's tied to the bed, and he can't move. His cellmate, while he was out, by the way, they pump gas into the cells and then move this the people around. That's how they do it. When he wakes up from this, he's tied to his bed and can't move, and his cellmate, Tyr Magassi, says, you're younger and stronger than me. You can last the 30 days. You will kill me. So, like, he has to do this. And for his own survival, right? So they're pitted against each other straight out of the gate. And they engage in a conversation here, which eventually Tiramagasi says, I'm, you're not going to be untied. In fact, I'm going to make it as long as I can, six, seven, eight days uh, mm-hmm. without food. And then I am going to start carving you up. And Tiramagasi rationalizes that he is going to do his best to keep him alive while he does this and just tear off little strips of flesh. But again, without any, you know, medical care or, you yeah. know, any sort of like antibacterial, like nothing, like this isn't going to go well. Plus so. he's tied to the bed and they clearly show in the film that he's like shit and pissed himself by the time the cutting starts. So it's like game over. Yeah, he says like, I'll take as little as I need. I'll make some for you and I'll tend to your wounds and stuff. Like yeah. that's going to like. You're going to eat little pieces yeah. of yourself. Thanks. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but that's where we see the competition, not just between floors, but between cellmates. We are then at this point um, introduced, and actually not then, we had already been introduced to our third main character, um, and that is Miharu, this very mysterious character. She is a young woman, and uh, and sh- we're introduced to her earlier on. She actually rides the platform herself. She doesn't eat food on it, interestingly enough, or at least it doesn't seem like she does, but she actually rides the platform between all of the floors, and she's doing this because in her own mind, she thinks someone has taken her... Her, her child and her child is on one of these floors. So every time she gets relocated, she goes on this journey up and down this tower um, looking for her kid. And um, in each and every case, we see the violence where most of the floors she ends up landing on momentarily. She is attacked or accosted. Maybe they want to eat her, or in many cases, maybe uh, they actually want to rape her. Um, these are the, 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 this is where we get this idea that here is an individual who is clearly bereaved and is on a noble mission to find her child. And even though the competition is so fierce that we, we, in this case, we, the prisoners, have lost our humanity and we are willing to like look past or even help in this case. We're not even willing to like ignore her plight. We're willing to actually take advantage of her plight to better ourselves in whatever way, whether that is in terms of our food consumption or in this case, uh, sexual predation. It's actually like, a super heartbreaking part of the story. Yeah, and we learn that she does this every month. Every time she gets on a floor, a new floor, she rides the platform down. Oh, you just reminded me, that's when he's thinking about jumping is the first time he sees her, she goes down to the floor below and the two guys on that floor grab her and like it, they're about to rape her. And so he's thinking about jumping to like help her. And that's when his cellmate says, yeah, it's seven or nine meters. You can maybe survive the fall. And right when he's like having to make this decision on whether to jump or not, she kills the two dudes. Which and it gets back on the platform. Yeah, which also I think there's a lesson there that that you can only be shit on by society enough before you yourself become like this I don't know. I, I don't even know what the term I'm looking for is this, this brutal, like mindless killer, like only in search of this one, like singular tunnel vision goal of yours and everyone else. I mean, in this case, it's self-defense, but in this case, like she, she does, she's brutal. She is, she survived this long by learning how to be as brutal and unemotional and unempathetic as possible. She mm-hmm. is a stone cold killer. Yep. 
Um, I just had one more thing. Like, I want to tell Tiramagasi's story because his cellmate asks him why he's there. And he tells the story of he's at home and he's watching like the home shopping network and there's a knife sharpener. And he, his quote, which I thought was funny, I even wrote it down here, was like, maybe my life is crap because I don't sharpen my knife. That's what he says. So he buys a knife sharpener. The very next thing on the home shopping network, as he continues to watch it, is a self-sharpening knife. And he talks about how he just gets pissed as shit because he just bought this knife sharpener. And now the next thing they show is a self-sharpening knife. So he buys that too. And then he gets so pissed off that he pushes his television out of his window and it falls on a quote unquote immigrant is his term and kills him. And that's why his story for why he's in the prison. I thought just this little, like his history story tells us so much about commodification and like capitalism and industrialization where first off, just the irony of like he buys a knife sharpener and then the very next thing is a self-sharpening knife. Like we just keep producing, making innovations solely to sell them to people when they serve no function. But then I think the real moral of the story, which I really like that maybe you'd have to dig in a little bit to get, is the fact that his television, the knife sharpener, the self-sharpening knife, the home shopping network, all of these modern industrial-like innovations, the television is what kills the quote-unquote immigrant. And I think there's so much narrative there of like how the immigrants, quote unquote, the foreigners, et cetera, they're the ones that suffer as a result of the consumption of everyone else in the world. No, I'm different on that. Okay. Tell me. I, I argue that, and he goes on later, and I don't have the quote written down, but essentially he is arguing not only is it the his corporate overlords who convinced him that knives and television are the way he can become happy when, when in reality we know that consumption never makes you happy, which goes back to this idea of the unfillable void, which is who we are as as, as modern Americans, um, or in this case Spaniards. That's a big which part I think of it. is represented by the whole, right? Right, in, that's the whole. Yeah. It is unfillable. Like you, are, you will never be satisfied. Like again, capitalism in a nutshell is meant to make you feel unsatisfied. I mean, interestingly, that's kind Insatiable. of the, one of the morals of the movie is that you can only be fulfilled the hole can only be filled for two minutes at a time right and then immediately it starts the clock over again back to the immediate gratification but anyway my different take on this is when he tells the story of throwing the tv out he definitely blames like the system he definitely Mm -hmm. does like it's the system that pissed me off and that's why i'm unsatisfied like i thought knives or a knife sharpener would make my life better i was like my life sucks because i don't have a knife sharpener that's what they told me right well then i got the knife sharpener and my life still sucked because then i didn't have the self-sharpening knife etc but here's the key the other reason i'm here this is like a two two-fold uh uh, uh, conclusion is the immigrant's existence to begin with. He says, if the immigrant hadn't been there, he wasn't even supposed to be there. The TV wouldn't have fallen on him. So in a way he is blaming the other, the foreigner, the the, the person that's not supposed to be there. So it's both of their faults, both my corporate masters, as well as these immigrants that are taking our jobs or whatever, like, like they're both at fault. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm a genuinely dissatisfied individual. And I mean, the whole point is he never blames himself clearly. The way he tells the story, it's the system's fault. It's the immigrant's fault for being there and so on. He doesn't take personal responsibility uh, for sure. Um, yeah. So Wait, you're about to say something else. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I wanted to get back to Miharu for just a second when, when they meet again on the, on the floor where, where uh, Trimagasi has tied up our, our protagonist and is, uh, is planning on eating him. And he actually pulls out the one thing he brought, of course, is his self-sharpening knife, the Samurai Plus. Great name. Mm-hmm. And he has. He starts carving into uh, uh, Goreng's leg, 
which is super gross. It, it, they show it. It is gross. But anyway, he starts carving into his leg, pulls off a nice little strip, and it is then that uh, Miharu decides that she can't watch this. She or the platform. She happens to come down on the platform yeah. at this time. Yeah, yep. she happens to come down on the platform at that time. She comes in and helps him out. She slits uh, Tiramagasi's throat um, and eventually unties Goring and then gives the knife to Goring. I thought this was the super interesting part. She could have easily finished him off, but for the film, she slits his throat, but he's still alive. She gives the knife to Goring, and he crawls over and finishes him off. I mean, just stabs the shit out of him repeatedly. I think this is a huge turning point for our protagonist, where, like, now he's in. He's killed. He's in the system. He is, quote-unquote, savage like all the rest. Why did Miharu choose to even save Goreng? She's been basically heartless to this point. Why, Why at random would she choose to save Goreng in this case? I don't know. There's something in the story, but I can't remember what it was, that happens between them. Not like the sex fantasy. He has a fantasy about having sex with her like a dream when he's under the gas and then wakes up and whatever. But So before that, when they first met, I think since he was new and fresh to the system, he was the only one when she came to like his level that didn't accost her or attack yeah. her and actually just tried to help her. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what he thought he could do, but she clearly had been, you know, yeah. she was bruised and bloodied and looked hungry. And maybe there was something in his eyes, but some sort of kindness there that I mean, he treated she, her like a human that no one else was yeah, doing. She yeah. recognized. And I think that was the one reason that she didn't just finish them both off because mm-hmm. right after uh Tiramagasi or Trimagasi is uh is is finished off by Goreng, she sets to carving him up and eating him and that's yep. how they're gonna last these next uh whatever twenty, yeah, she helps, 20 plus like, days. Nurse our title character back to health for a lot of a better word, even though he's still wrecked. But yeah, she carves up Tiramagasi and Trimagasi and feeds him to Goreng. Is there any sociological lesson there in in her 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 willingness to uh, help out this one individual that showed her humanity? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone in the system is looking for just even the slightest amount of humanity and recognition as a human being, you know what I mean? For sure. De- for sure in the prison and definitely in this, like, metaphor for, you know, advanced capitalist industrial society. And mm-hmm. so she helps him as a result of this just brief moment. I mean, it's less than two minutes, clearly, on the platform. He doesn't actually do anything for her. He just looks at her like a human being, you know? Right, which she had not seen. Which, again, if we think about, like, how we how we move through society, once we've dehumanized somebody in our class-based system, again, one need look no further than, like, walking in an urban area and experience, seeing people experiencing homelessness and the way people either just don't even look, just refuse to look, or at times, and, and dare I say, accost them for being beggars, whether it's uh, physical or, or verbal, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's part of it, and, and we can see like it is this dehumanization of the system again leads to this constant fracturing this competition this take what's mine consume as much as i can right now which i think is important for the platform like the film obviously they've dehumanized everyone else that's in the structure clearly like you couldn't eat all the food looking at the person on the floor below you knowing they're going to get nothing unless you've succeeded in dehumanizing them in your own mind. Right. This is just the way the system works, and I'm stuck within the system, so I might as well just follow the rules of the system. Yep. Like, all of these things are clear, like, digs at the rationalization process that we all undergo in modern capitalist society. Like, that's what that that's what the director's clearly trying to emphasize here, that we are, and we, we, we're going to do, again, separate episodes on this, but we are, in many cases, ethically flexible. 
flexible in my terms, not Nick, I'll be the only one that says this here, morally bankrupt to operate in a system like this. We have to be. And we then rationalize this ethical flexibility and moral bankruptcy through uh, the various ideologies that, that guide us. Or in the case of the platform, it's not ideological, it's material. But yes, mm-hmm. we rationalize it. Well, this is just the way the system works. Or this is because I was lucky enough to be born in this country and you weren't. Or this is because whatever, those uh, with the biggest stick, right? Those are the ones that get to write the rules. It's that winners write – or what is it? Winners write history or mm-hmm. something like that. All of these stupid yeah. – fucking cliches that we just we just rationalize away that's what the director's drawing out here yep and i think there's something to be said for the fact that like that film that we talk about all the time the lottery of birth that talks about the idea of how much of your life is a result of just being born where you were to whom you were born to and so on a lot of that is in this film as well like basically it's a lottery of which floor you end up every time and the irony and i think the point here is that Even when you get randomly assigned to a floor that has no food, when you get back up to the higher floors, you're going to eat probably more than you need to eat. And you're going to be like you're, you're, you will have experienced the lows and then rationalize your exploitation of those people in the lower area because somehow, because of random circumstance, you made it up to the top. Yep. We're all under, again, the illusion here that we have worked really hard uh, as individuals to achieve whatever little status we have. And we're here to tell you, apparently, so is this director of this film that we just watched yesterday. But we're here to tell you that's not the case. It is random. It is a complete lottery. No one, no one on planet Earth, uh, uh, you know, whether they were being carried around in their dad or a stork or whatever in God's mind said, hey, I'd like to be born where? I don't know. Beverly Hills, Los Angeles, California, and mm. I'm going to earn that. No, 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 no. Almost everything is unearned. Yep. Yeah. No, like there's the saying like if hard work actually generated in wealth, then the single mother of three kids working four jobs would be the richest person on the planet. Absolutely. Like that's not how it works. Absolutely. You know I mean? and, and like I said, our, our understanding of hard work, this isn't meant to demean anybody listening, but if it does, then maybe good. I'm doing my job. It's not that I don't believe you're working hard. I, it's just a different kind of hard work um, that I think, again, is also ideologically and materially rationalized. Again, sitting in a cubicle for a couple hours a day uh, or whatever, filling out Excel spreadsheets or or whatever. I, like, that's not hard work. Shit. Even, and I, I've been in this industry, even in the service industry in a first world nation is not nearly as hard as we all make it out to be in comparison to, uh, honestly, 90% of the individuals on this planet. The interesting, if, though, for yeah. the film is that that's completely removed, right? There's right. no, you can't work harder to make it up the levels, which I think is the point, clearly. But it provides a different type of analysis, the fact that, like, you can't do anything. There's no kind of agency you could have to move up the floors, really. We'll talk about Bahara in a few minutes, but yeah, like, and you definitely can't permanently stay there. Even if somehow you worked your ass off to get to floor one, like in 30 days or whatever, you're going back down or wherever randomly you're going to end up in the thing. Right. And, and, and for that, I, I would argue some might say that the platform or the whole, whatever we choose to call this, is perhaps a little bit more fair than real life society. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, moving on, we need to get to the second cellmate that when, when, when the film, um, takes another little bit of a term. His second cellmate ends up being, um, the receptionist that he talked to to get into prison so that he can get this, this certified diploma or accredited diploma or whatever it is called. And this is Imogueri. 
Now they are on level thirty three, just so we know. Yeah, so life is actually not going for the next thirty days is not going to be too bad for them on level thirty three. Food still makes it there. It's kind of disgusting, but whatever. It's still food. Um, and at this point, you're so desperate, anything looks good. So you're doing okay on level thirty three. This is where we're also introduced to the fact that she brought the dog. I'm trying to still place the dog. I know I already knew when I saw the dog that this is going to be heartbreaking um, because it had to be. But I'm trying to place like why the directors or writers in this case made this choice to bring the dog. I mean, we we find out, and I guess I'll just spoil it right now. She volunteers to go in there because she's dying. She mm-hmm. she has cancer and she can't beat it, so she wants to experience this. So she's in here uh, working for the state. She's used to working for the state or the administration, as they're they're popularly called. Why do you think she brought the dog? Is it just kind of like a final goodbye with the dog? I'm trying to like, why is the dog there? Yeah, what does the dog symbolize? Yeah, Yeah. I don't know. I thought about this a lot too when I was watching it. I think it symbolizes it's some different version. Like it's non-human, right? So something else about humanity. And I think it actually kind of points to the fact that, because I'm sure this is true for everyone when you watch the film, you're like, automatically sympathetic and empathetic for the dog probably more than the humans that you're seeing go through this like which i think says a lot about our modern society right i'm guilty i yeah i, I prefer the dog to the humans so i am guilty 100 percent. the dog right. is a is 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 uh and he also gets pissed at the beginning because she chose to bring the dog but then she rationalizes it because they alternate days so the dog eats one day and she eats the next day because he's like you're taking two rations like how dare you and she's like no i eat then he eats like while she's there it's also revealed to us that even as the receptionist or the person or the administrator one of the administrators we don't really get her position I, I shouldn't call her the receptionist but that that's she's sitting behind a desk and she receives his application so i guess that's where i'm getting this term from but regardless we find out that she doesn't actually even know the true full extent of the horrors of the platform mm-hmm. um or the whole so um she definitely knows it's not fun. She knows you're not supposed to bring, for example, Don Quixote. You're supposed to bring something useful there. Like, and she know. actually says, like, you're the first person that's ever brought a book. Yeah. yeah. She does know that. But she do- I don't think she really even understood how bad it got in there. Again, mm-hmm. you can't be. If you work, and in this case, the administration, we can just place in there. We can just call it the state. If you work for the state and your whole life is basically, again, like – implementing the the tools of the state to maintain its status quo its structural integrity you actually are meant to remain fully ignorant of the horrors of how this structure stays in place yeah your tools of the bureaucracy right you're absolved of responsibility so she knows a little bit about the structure and the procedures but she doesn't know things like how many levels there are and so on which i think is actually interesting that this is a mystery throughout the entire film no one knows how many levels there actually are he actually counts. So we see him counting in one of the scenes and making marks on the wall. And we don't really know what he's doing, but it's revealed later. He's counting how long it takes the platform to go down and then go back up. We should have, I guess, mentioned the platform goes to the level and then continues. Then at the end of the day, it flies back up like incredibly quickly through back to the top. So he's counting how long until from his floor down till it goes back up because in theory if it stays two minutes at every floor and it takes so long to move between the floors his counting should be able to time how many floors there are and he guesses there's about 250 we later in a second will find out that's incorrect but when he gets her as a cellmate she doesn't know either she, so there's a lot of mystery in how many floors there actually are. She doesn't know the full workings of the system and so on. She only knows what she's experienced through doing intake, basically, of what people have chosen to bring in and so on. Because she says, like I said, he's the first person that ever chose to bring a book. And, like, who brings a book? And 
But then she chose to bring the dog, so you could argue who brings a fucking dog. Like, that's stupid. Too, well, for her, know. yeah. I mean, she's dying, and this is probably her greatest companion, so I guess it's this is some sort of final goodbye. And, right. and I'm willing to bet she wouldn't have brought the dog if she knew it was as brutal as it was, because, of course, we know what's eventually going to happen to the dog. Um, uh, one more thing before we talk about this, this what happens to the dog, is uh, <laughs> Miharu makes another uh, appearance, and it is at this appearance that it is revealed that Imogueri, uh, our, our, inta- our intaker, receptionist, or whatever, she's like, that person's crazy. She's lost all her humanity. She's disgusting. She doesn't understand. There's no children in here. There can never be any children. No one under 16 is allowed in here. Yeah, we get another level of understanding of this character that's seeking her, I don't know, son or daughter. I can't remember. I think it was daughter, but anyways, seeking her child. This person, what's her name again? His cellmate on this level? Imawari. Imawari. She was the one that processed her into the facility. So she knows. She said she shows up. She was like an actress and she wanted to be Marilyn Monroe of wherever she was from. I can't remember. Oh, this was low key racist. She's, she's, you can clearly tell they use the term Asian. So yeah, she wanted to be an Asian, um, uh, Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. But I think there's also, that's important, is that race is used quite often in here to, oh, 100%. to signify people, but we'll yep. get to that in just a moment. Yeah. More. yeah. Absolutely. So she gives us a little bit of the background of this person that's seeking her child, that's writing the platform uh, every month. Uh, but we still don't really know, is there actually a child? Is she insane? Like Because she tells us that there's no under-16s allowed in the facility. So that there couldn't clearly be a child here. We later find out, interestingly, that that's not true, or maybe it isn't. I don't know. That's a mystery. We'll talk about that in a second. But So she basically reveals a little more of the story of that character and what's going on, and then we are really left, though, with more questions than we are answers after that Right. At that point, you you actually kind of start buying into the notion that this uh, Miharu is just crazy, and she's yep. just been here so long that, that she's lost her mind. Mm-hmm. She has been in the system, the quote-unquote system, again, if we want to use the analogy— whatever, modern modern industrial society. She's yeah. been so long that she's lost her grip on reality and what's actually important. And so she, now she's just grasping at some sort of, again, illusory feeling of realness, yep. right? She's looking for, yeah, she has this desire, right? This desire to seek out this child that perhaps she's manufactured in her mind, but at least it gives her something to do other than just participate in this system. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think um, she represents sort of a lot of the psychoanalytic aspect of the film. Like she, it gives us a lot of like discourse in that arena through her character. Like I said, the desire to seek this thing that she, maybe she knows, maybe she doesn't, but she's never going to achieve, but she's doing it anyways and so on. Well, and the cherry on top is that Miharu is going to be the one that victimizes the dog. Yeah. Um, which is, again, that's, that makes you not want to side with her. Like, yep. and that makes you want to alienate her even further is that she killed this cute little Dotson, this little wiener yeah. dog. And, you know, you can see it's, well, I guess I won't describe that. It's, 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 it's <laughs> grotesque. Let's just say it's not, it's not, it's not a fun scene, uh, to look at. But, but that further for the audience, um, makes you want to dislike Miharu. Yep. This person that is, um, again, trying to find some sort of meaning outside the system. I think there's, like you said, low-key racism. There's a lot of blatant, I don't know if it's intentional, but I read it as just like blatant kind of unnecessary, like the Asian person kills the dog. Like, right. come on. Like, well, but I think, I, I don't know that the, I guess I would ask, have to interview the director or the writers on this, if they did this to like make fun of stereotypes right. or because, or if they were actually just following 
prey to stereotypes. And I thought about actually reading, finding interviews with the director and reading other commentary on the film, but I intentionally chose not to so that we didn't go down their rabbit holes. So right. I haven't done any of that. I probably will after, but. Right. So, okay. Eventually they're moved. Uh, uh, Goreng, our main character, and Ima, Imagwari, the other character, they're moved so far down. I don't know what floor it is. Did you mark it? It's, it's, no, they get moved up actually to level six. Oh no, that's when he's with Baharat. Okay, yeah. let me look because I made my notes according it's, to the level. It's levels. in the it's in the two hundreds. It's way down there where they're not going to make it. And um, he wakes up during this time period. Two o two. They're on level two hundred. Yeah, they're not going to make it. She had um, already said, "I think there's two hundred levels," and then they wake up on two hundred two. So this is another reveal for us as the viewer that like she doesn't know, and who knows how many levels there are. Exactly. So when they're on level two o two, he wakes up, and in short, what we're supposed to get out of this is she now feels disillusioned as well. How do we know this? He just finds her body. When she wakes up on level 202, thinking there was only 200 floors, as somebody that worked for the state, for the administration, yep. she now knows the whole thing was a lie. And uh, she partook in this horrific system, throw in the fact that her dog has passed away, throw in the fact that she is still battling cancer, and she decides to end her life. Hang on, though. Yeah. I want to come back to level 202 because there is so much commentary when they're at level 3 between him and her about society and the system itself she reveals to him that it's called the vertical self-management center that's the official like title of this building which is kind of irrelevant for our commentary but it's just funny she actually puts in a lot of work to try to get the people below to participate in this like rationing which is basically what she calls calls it she every time the platform comes to their level takes two plates cleans them off and then creates two servings of food on these two plates she like goes to the lengths of like making a salad and some meat and like making a serving of food and as it goes down every time she tells them guys i have made two rations of food that is more than enough for you to survive on you eat those rations and then you make two more rations and if we all do this then it will make it all the way to the bottom the food will make it to the bottom because remember they're at level 33 so this is relatively high up right and so she tries this day in and day out and the people never listen to her they just eat and eat and eat and eat until and so they him her and our title character have discourse about this they have these conversations about what she's trying to do. And she basically says, like, I'm trying to make spontaneous solidarity. Like, like we can do this. And he doesn't believe in this. He says, there's no way this is going to happen. And, like, he, in fact, says, like, perhaps this place exists precisely for the opposite of what you think. Perhaps it exists so that if solidarity emerges out of this place, the administration will know how to prevent it on the outside. And then she has another quote, which I think is so good. Oh, you're one of those people who thinks everything the administration does is bad. I think the administration here is like this, quote unquote, to use Zizek's term, like the big other. This thing that we don't know who they are. We imagine that they are manipulating the entire system. In modern society, they represent like this, quote unquote, big other that is sort of guiding the system, that is approving kind of how society is structured and manipulating what that looks like and so on. I think the administration represents that in this film because we never see them. We never see what they're doing. We don't, we have no idea. And so she accuses him of being someone that, well, you just think that everything that they do is wrong, but neither of them have any idea of what the truth is. Later then, he does agree. He does convince the people at the lower levels to 
do the rationing system that she's been trying, but only through force. So she tries at the beginning to have a dialogue with them and it fails miserably. He eventually says to them, guys, if you don't start doing this, I'm going to shit in your food every day and smear it around so there will be no food left for you. And then they finally start doing it. I think there's a lot of things there to discuss as far as like social change is concerned and how to convince people of things. And like, she's trying the nonviolent approach. He clearly goes for like the more aggressive approach and so on. Do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, we can probably probably spend quite a bit of time on this, um, which is fine. We're, we're not in any giant rush here. The first thing I wanted to kind of pull out of that was like political ideology. I'm not sure what the directors or the writers are after. We haven't watched any interviews. We don't know what their political persuasions are. We've done this intentionally. But one could argue that that is some sort of – like the whole film then is – this draws the whole film into some sort of critique – of socialism or communism in that case, basically stating that unless you force people to be a certain way, we will always, because of our human nature, and I am so damn tired of hearing that argument. I'm not socialist nor am I communist, but the the, the, the most cliche argument as to why those things don't work is because we, our human nature is just greed and it's disgusting and this is just who we are. And uh, some people will throw in uh, original sin as part of the problem. But but in reality, like, again, and we've done entire episodes on this in more of our, like, again, sociological, anthropological, and ideological episodes where we've, we've looked at the research. Like, that's not who humans were before ideology. It's who humans are now after ideology, but it's not who we naturally are. And I think maybe the, the filmmakers or directors might be falling victim to that. I'm not sure. Again, I don't know what their motivation is. Or they could be, again, essentially critiquing the fact that these these institutions or this way of thinking of working together as as a group are just – they're impossible without heavy coercion. Or like, yeah, that's the interesting part of the film is that it's left as a mystery whether this is a commentary on human nature in the sense that human they're violent and they attack each other and they kill and they murder and that's human nature or they're only doing this because of the system in which they exist, the vertical self-management center. Right. Right. Well, and politically speaking, uh, obviously, if you listen to more than just this episode, which we, we're not sure if you have, but but if you have, yeah, I mean, we we definitely dabble quite a bit in anarchist philosophy here, and one could argue that this is also a critique. Again, this is a Spanish film, Spain being one of the few places on the planet that has dabbled and experimented in some successful versions of anarchy. This could be a critique against anarchism as well. Yep. That essentially, that without the state, in the case of the platform, or without the coercion of Goreng and shitting in people's food. <laughs> and you just leave people to their own devices, anarchism can never be a thing because, again, our natural human nature is so bad. Um, what, and it doesn't even matter what the material or ideal circumstances are is or what the carrot is that's being dangled. We will still find ways to fuck each other over. It could be a critique in that regard. And if that's the case, then, then, then yeah, I have bigger problems with the film than maybe I previously thought. But I also think it's just interesting, just this one aspect that you made me think of that I wrote in a note when I was watching the film, this like natural law aspect of – the fact that you stay on every floor for 30 days, that would have to be the case. Because if you only stayed on every floor for seven days, you could easily survive. Or if you had to stay on the floor for 60 days, you would never survive, even on the bottom like levels. So it basically has to be 30 days. So I think it's interesting that this sort of natural law for human beings that we can exist without food for roughly about 30 days 
it has to be the, the vertical self-management center has to be structured like this or else it would be a completely different film. Yeah. And when you use the term vertical self-management structure, it also could be a critique again on this could be some Orwellian thing like this is the state conditioning. We talked about it at yep. the beginning of this episode already. There is both uh, instances of operant and classical conditioning mm-hmm. here, like, you know, Pavlov, Pavlov's dog style. And maybe this is the state conditioning people. And she seems to think it is for when they get out to be willing participants in the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That term and that Orwellian. might be their diploma. Yeah. I actually read a review of the film before we watched it because I thought it came out last week. And they use that exact term, Orwellian, which I thought was interesting. I disagree, but whatever. It is what it is. And like I said, we haven't listened to any interviews with the directors or anything. So I don't know what are the writers, I guess. I don't know what their real intent is. But yeah, it's possible. It's a possible interpretation of the film for sure. Okay. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so we're kind of back down to level 202 yeah. where she finally uh, does end herself. And this is like her last great sacrifice. It, he's not going to eat unless he eats her. And and she's killing herself for all the reasons we talked about, her cancer, dead dog, and the lies of the institution she has spent her entire life working for, but also now to feed uh, Goreng. And and that's that's what's going to happen here. Anything you want to add to that part? Yeah, I do just want to say she specifically, I don't remember how it happens. Is it, so when he kills his first cellmate, then that person, what's his name again? Trimagasi? Trimagasi. Trimagasi starts, he starts having visions of Trimagasi. It's a ghost. It's a whatever it is. But so they maintain like dialogue throughout the film, even after he's dead. The same thing happens with her. I think it's in a vision or a ghost or whatever that she tells him like, I left you. I did this. I didn't jump. I chose to hung, hang myself because I left you a gift. The gift is clearly her body that he can survive on for the next 30 days, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting. So in her final act, she even leaves this quote unquote gift for our main character. Right. So we'll move finally to the the last cellmate, spoiler alert, the last cellmate that Goreng will have, and this is Baharat, who is... Um, By the way, a- this is when he wakes up, he thinks he wakes up, he's having a dream about having sex with the girl that's seeking her child. So there's this sex scene, like fantasy sex scene, and then he wakes up and he's on level six with a different cellmate. Right. And level six, um, again, since we've kind of basically spoiled everything so far, is a super good floor to be on. Yeah. You're going to get lots of actually probably untouched food. It's only two minutes and this spread is pretty big. So you're going to get some untouched food. If you just play the game for the next 30 days, your next 30 days are going to be spectacular. But they're going to choose not to do that. He gets a, a cellmate named uh, Baharat. And Baharat is um, a black man. Um, it, it, he is, uh, and this is where we're going to see some of the racism um, that the directors either included because, well, I don't know why they included it, but I, hopefully it's a commentary on uh, racism in Europe because it is a European film and we know that Europe is still experiencing uh, a great racial disparity to this day, not unlike the United States. But anyway... We find out that Baharat is kind of a revolutionary in a way. What he wants to do, he kind of apparently already knew. We don't get a lot of backstory on him, but we do know that he was aware of how the system works. So he brought with him, his one item he brought with him was a powerful rope. 
and he's going to plan on using this rope to climb up to the floors and get to essentially the top and handle business when he gets there. I don't know what that looks like. He doesn't lay out some sort of like revolutionary plan. He just knows he wants to take it, make it to the top. In fact, it seems almost like he kind of wants to make it to the top, maybe for his own reasons rather than like the reasons of the entire whole. But it's important that, that even if at first his intentions are a little bit more selfish, it's these intentions to at least rebel that Goreng is going to be able to co-opt and make him more of a communal-minded revolutionary. What do you think of that? Yep. No, I think that's exactly correct. I do think there's a lot of racial commentary here, though, of like the black man is the one who refuses to abide by the rules and tries to, quote-unquote, game the system by climbing the levels, not doing it through the lottery, not doing the ways you're, quote-unquote, supposed to do, but by going outside of the system and trying to get ahead. So, I mean, do we have to, like, because I don't necessarily want to accuse the writers or the directors of racism. I think maybe it's satirical. I don't yep. know. I don't want to yeah. accuse them. No, and we might have yeah. to investigate, like, if they were doing this, just reproducing traditional European I'm racism. I'm assuming they're not racist. Sat- I'm assuming they're doing it as commentary. I'm on, assuming yeah. as well. I just want to make sure. But, yes, I think that's what, what they were after there. And, um, anyway, his first attempt to get out of level six, again, he, he wants to do this, even though he's on level six, because in his mind it's actually advantageous there's only five floors for him to have to climb super close for him to get his goal yeah so he throws up a rope to the people above them and they pretend they're going to help and he makes it almost to the top and then they uh literally shit in his mouth and drop the drop the rope and uh goreng has to save him from falling down hundreds of floors so i think again there's commentary there that these people on the fifth floor the one right above them they're likely going to find themselves in level 100, 200, 300, whatever. They're going to find themselves there. But for this brief moment in time, while they're, you know, the creme de la creme, they're going to use this opportunity to shit on other people rather than recall or maybe look forward to their experiences of being the one shit on. Well, and it's funny because it doesn't cost them a damn thing. They could easily help him up and then he gets to the next level and he's just passing through. Or even if he's on there, like, it costs them nothing. Even if he ends up on their level, there's plenty of food to go around at level five, right? Three of them could easily survive for a month. But instead, they take that opportunity to, like you said, literally shit in his mouth. Why? What? What? What is the commentary there? I mean, I know why yeah. the, the characters do it, but again, why are our writers and directors? I mean, like, it's what like they... this. Even at the top level, competition is strong. I don't know. I, that's the only thing I can think of. That maybe it's because he's a black man. Maybe it's there's so many avenues we can choose to go based on this. Well, it's part not even the maybe film. they use that, that, that descriptor yeah. the whole time where yeah. that, that's their descriptor. They continue to use the descriptor black rather than again, same thing with, um, Miharu. She's Asian. Exactly. So we continue to see this descriptor over and over again, that they are, again, these are the others. This is the fracturing of the labor system, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, after this failed attempt, this is where Goreng is able to, um, use Baharat's energy his revolutionary energy to find another way to basically fix the system. What's that way, Nick? So they decide that they are going to ride the platform down and they're going to prevent people from eating at all. And they're going to make it all the way to the bottom. And then they are going to send the food back up as a symbol of like their resistance. Well, hold on. Just... They actually plan initially to only keep the first 50 levels from eating. They're going to let, uh, they're going to let people 50, 50 and below eat a little bit because those people almost never get food, but they are going to ration it. They're going to be like, here, you get this, whatever, this tomato, you get this apple. You don't get to just like stuff your face. You're right. The top 50, they're going to prevent 51, I guess I wrote down. 
Anyway, that's what they're going to do. And then here's the other thing. They also decide they get to a floor at some point. I forget what floor it is where they meet a wise old man. And it's, well, says, hang on. Let's talk about what happens oh, first as okay. they're going down. I did think it was interesting, just a little commentary on the side that now the message is instead of Barat trying to climb to the top to like take on the system, whatever that is, that the, the methodology now is that they're going to go down into the depths to the very bottom in order to get a message to the top, which I think is just interesting on itself. I don't know if that needs more commentary. I just thought that that was a shift in the thing that he had been fighting for for so long. Now it was to go into depths so they could impact the top level, which I thought was interesting. Um, I had some good quotes here that I liked um, because Baharat says to him, Goring is convinced, trying to convince him of this, and Baharat says only a lunatic would leave level six. And Goring says only two lunatics on fire. And I just thought that was like a dope as shit quote. Like there's no commentary to that. I just thought it was awesome. Well, because when he wakes up, like when he first wakes up Goring on level six, he does hear Baharat yelling, we're on level six, I'm on fire, I'm on fire. So Baharat's yep. like yelling that. He's exactly. so excited to be on level yeah. six. Okay, I do want to say though that I think it's interesting just in the sense of like revolution from the top, like quote unquote, that their plan only works if they have the resources on level six. They couldn't do this plan starting at level 200 or even level 50. It only works if they're at one of the top levels because they need the resources to make it all the way to the bottom. Yeah, they can't. This cannot be a bottom-up movement. And there's clear commentary there. Um, And if you listen to any of our other episodes on revolution, we note that no revolution in human history, to the best of our knowledge, has been completely grassroots from the bottom up. The closest might be like the Haitian Revolution, but even they had like both free blacks and some maroons and a couple of imperial powers at first helping them so there was like this whole combination this like mad whatever mad amalgamation of different actors that led to the revolutionary processes and that's not to demean like whatever happened in haiti and you know the beginning of the 19th century or yeah 19th century Mm -hmm. but but it is meant to be like this this commentary very clearly that social movement processes require resources that these the illusion of grassroots movements is that it is just an illusion without resources and support um from pillars of power then 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 movement cannot take place yep okay so now they start writing the platform down interestingly so they have disassembled their beds and armed themselves with basically the bars from their beds. And so that's how they're keeping people at bay. But they end up having to kill a shitload of people like on their way down. People that refuse to take their ration and try to fight them for more than they need. And so they end up just beating the shit out of a bunch of people and killing them, which I thought was interesting. And there's maybe some commentary there of they're forced to kill people that are basically, quote unquote, on the same level as them on their way through making social change, basically all the, on their way down through the levels. So do you have to, I mean, sometimes you have to teach with the, the stick and not the carrot? I Is mean, that, that's I mean, what happens. I don't know if that's real life, the literal but in the stick film in this for case? sure. Yeah. In the film that definitely happens. Uh, but I think there's some, something to be said there for like people at the top, upper classes and even the middle class resist the change and they have to violently impose upon them. Right. And honestly, that is clear commentary. Basically, and I don't know if the directors or writers intended this. Again, we're trying to read between the lines using our own, in this case, uh, academic and ideological lenses here, that this is this could be perceived as a clear commentary that nonviolent protest does not work. Yep. Yeah, I think so. And even 
Then, though, we get a little commentary. I think it's from Trimagasi. I can't remember, like, as a ghost talking to Goring. I don't remember who actually says this, but they says, no, maybe it is the wise man that you are getting to. So why don't we get to that right now? Well, uh, well. also, we also need to mention it's during this this journey that Miharu finally meets her match. Uh, she eventually ends up on a, a level, and Goring finds her dead. Um, it's a little bit unclear how all this went down, but Miharu finally ends up killed. Yeah, I don't remember exactly how she's dead either, but yeah, she's she, dead. Yeah, and this, you know, just further... Um, well, it's it's on one of the levels where there is, like, a massive fight. This is where the big fight takes place, where Goreng himself is, like, is wounded, and Bahara is also wounded. Um, they're fighting the guy with the samurai sword yep. and one of his other, like, big tough friends. Whatever. Anyway, that, that, that all takes place on this level. The key level that they stop at happens to be a level with a wise old man, and his name is uh, Senor Brambang. Um, he's in a wheelchair, and for some reason the other cellmate is, like, wheeling him around. So they have some sort of arrangement or agreement. Um, I don't remember what level that was on. I forgot. I didn't write yeah, it down. But. It, it's okay. But it's at this point that Baharat recognizes uh, Senor Brang Bang. Um, and he receives, they have a little bit of a discourse and dialogue here, where Bahara and um, Goreng uh, decide that they need, or excuse me, Brang, Brambang convinces them they need to actually have a message, a symbol that the upper echelons will receive. At first, their only message was, we're going to make sure everybody all the way down eats. But there was going to be no message to be sent back up. This is where they get the idea from Senor Brambang that they actually need one pristine piece of food um, that uh, is completely untouched and eaten. And when that flies back up to the top at the end of the day, that will be the symbol. That will be the message that the administration needs to see. I don't know what they're going to do once they receive this message, but it will be a message. Well, interestingly, he also tells them, I think it's him, that says the administration has no conscience, but there's a slim chance the workers on level zero do yes. deliver your message there. Yeah, the administration isn't going to change, but those uh, those workers for the state, they are still humans. Which there, we actually get a little, there's a super brief yeah. scene where we see the chefs basically being berated by their boss because one of them, one of their hairs ended up in this dessert. And so he has them all lined up and he's yelling at them. So we get a brief little glimpse into maybe they might be slightly unhappy as well, which I think is key. The people at the top, right? So yeah, this, this dessert, um, is meant to remain in pristine condition and make its way all the way up to the top. And maybe, maybe you'll be able to create a little bit of solidarity with the working class of the state, right? The actual state workers. Um, right? If, if Ima, Ima, Ima Wary was able to eventually real, eventually realize the lies of her, her employment, maybe these chefs would as well. Um, so. Yeah, it's panacotta, I remember, because he, like, yeah. countlessly, like, says the panacotta is the, the message, panicotta, and he's yeah. protecting it, like, Baharat's protecting it, like, with his life, basically. Yeah, I mean, not this, basically, this, for this pristine literally. dessert. Like, yeah. and it's, it's kind of interesting that way, but it also speaks to this idea, um, uh, Nick and I used to convene a little bit with some some uh, revolutionaries from Serbia, and they they use this term quite often. This idea of pulling on pillars of power in revolutionary theory rather than pushing them over. So maybe this was also an appeal because this is when the violence kind of stops as well a little bit, or it slows down. They become a little bit less violent as they get further and further down because, again, those people are more likely to be happy that they're getting any food at all. Uh, And the violence kind of subsides. And now they're looking at sending a message, which is a version of nonviolent protest. What do you think of that? Yep, I 100% put that. um, Yeah. I, my note specifically says, a symbol, a perfect dish that makes it back to level zero untouched. The wise man tells them this. is So first off, 
is he representing the revolutionary vanguard? Maybe. So they're asking him, he's giving them advice and he changes the whole direction of their quote unquote protest, right? And tells them that what you're doing is okay, but instead you need to send the message back up to level zero, send the panicata there. That will change the movement. And he also turns it into a nonviolent protest by doing this. Yep. Which is key. This is a turning point. And they keep going down all along the way. They are feeding people. They were both wounded very bad in that last like battle. Yeah. So there's some level they stop on and there's two dudes. One of them is like just massive and one of them is, has a samurai sword. I think it's the massive dude that has killed the woman. Miharu. I is, Miharu. Yeah, yeah. And so he gets pissed, goring and attacks this dude and like beats the shit out of him. And then the dude is just so big that he survives this beating and then he wrecks, um, Gorang. All the while, Bahara is fighting this dude with a samurai sword and he gets gashed on his side. And so he's injured, but he ends up victorious and he beheads the dude that's choking out Gorang. So they both survive this, but they're like injured, like they're destroyed. Their journey continues where essentially they're able to kind of feed everybody all the way uh, on down to level 333. Yep. And so we find out that that is the final level. And... It's there that uh, the story kind of... Oh, wait. There's one other important point, though, that they realize. As they start getting to lower levels, eventually it doesn't stop at one of the levels. And so they're confused on what's going on. And they realize if both cellmates are dead at the level, then the platform doesn't stop. Right. It's also at this point that they realize that Goring's counting is off because he didn't account for that because he had no way of knowing that. Right. So now they're on the platform going down and it's basically just flying through levels because all these people are dead and they have no idea where they're going to end up. Yeah, that's a good point. That's why he miscalculated the amount of levels there were. Anyway, they do finally get to level 333 and it stops. So somebody at this final 333rd level has somehow survived and we look under the bed and we find a child. Yep. And we realize now all of this, like Miharu wasn't going crazy. Her child really was lost in here. Yeah, I think somehow, it's key, like they don't speak, but you're left to assume that it is Miharu's child. Yeah. They're both Asian, so. Right, yeah. right. Like, yes. And it is a, it is a little girl. And uh, she is hiding under the bed. We don't necessarily know how she's made it this far along. So that is one of my questions, like a big plot hole that maybe I missed or there's some other meaning, deeper meaning that I, like was lost on me. But how she has survived at level 333, we don't know. They don't tell us that. So Yeah, that is because she's hiding under the bed. So essentially we're not sure that the workers even know she's there because uh, she's not changing floors every so often yeah i'm also yeah so we're left to assume she's been at that floor for a really long time she's somehow survived it also this tells us which i didn't think until much later after i watched the film that what's her name mahara uh miharu miharu never made it to the bottom or else she would have found her so we know that at somehow during her journeys she's either attacked or raped or whatever every single time at some level above 333 yeah she never makes it all the way down um for those of you that know a little um spanish history this is also the commentary there um regarding like again asian spaniards for lack of a better term mm-hmm. um this goes into spain's colonial past and a lot of the uh in this case we would argue filipino population that has made their way uh back to the colonizer state which we see oftentimes in colonial processes there's still i would argue some commentary here that the directors are after that's why they probably specifically chose mm-hmm. um to draw out this specific racial demographic in this case that's yep. my opinion yeah, um, it's, sure it's, it's a nod to spain's colonial past and yep. probably a critique of it rather than a nod i should say yeah i yep let's just keep going and then i'll bring this up in a second once we get um okay so, so anyway oh sorry yeah 
Yeah, just more of what happens on this level. They decide, basically, they're both completely destroyed and, like, dying, we're left to believe. And they decide that the girl is the message, that they must send the girl back up to level zero. And they say this over and over again. And so they give the girl the panna cotta, and she eats it. And then, I don't know exactly how the scene then plays out, but Goring wakes up, and Bahara is dead. So yeah. he's died so thing, from his wound. Yeah, the thing descends another level, like a deeper level that's dark where there's like nothing there. I don't know yeah. why it goes all the way down, but it's at this like deeper level, this darkness, this like druge. Exactly yeah, yeah, like this druge down there, this hell, like they're down in this hell. And then, uh, you know, he does wake up to find his, his buddy Baharat. No, but his, Baharat's dead on the 333. He hasn't gone down yet. Oh, okay. All right. Well, Baharat is... He wakes up, Baharat's dead. Then he pulls, like he's crawling around because he's so wrecked. He's like on the edge of death. He grabs the girl and they both crawl under the platform. So then it goes down at that point to the Druze. This nothing that we can't, we have no idea what's down there. Right. It's just dark and there's a light on the platform. That's all you can see. And, uh, at this point he decides, or, well, he doesn't decide on his own. He is visited by the two ghosts still. Mm-hmm. Baharat is not a ghost for some reason. I thought they, he should have been, but he's just, he's visited by two ghosts or two visions or whatever, two hallucination, two hallucinations. Uh, Trimagasi. They actually talk about this earlier Imawari. on because. He eats part of Trimagasi, and then he ends up eating part of, what's her name? Imawari. Imawari, too. And so in a vision, Trimagasi says, I am now part of you. That's why you can, like, whatever. So Uh, that might be why. The film tells us at least, like, why he's in there. Word. All right. Um, Anyway, they uh, convince him that he actually doesn't need to ride the platform, that her alone. He calls her, like, what does he call her? He calls himself a, a, a term of some sort. Like, he is the the delivery guy, but it's more romantic than that. Like, he yeah. is the precursor to whatever, this messianic figure. Yep. And it is no coincidence at this point that I think Goreng, with his bloodied face, his beard, his brown hair, is very uh, Christ-like, Christ-like yeah. looking. And he's basically sending this message back to the people, right? Like, that's, and the message is is this little girl. Yep. Um, and the little girl ascends and roll to credits. Yeah, they walk off. Goring and Trimagasi like walk off into the darkness. Yeah. The girl ascends and we see the platform flying up through all the floors. It's super fast. And then boom, credits. Yeah. I mean, that's it, right? That's the film. So what are your thoughts though? Like we, we've kind of gone yeah. through like analysis through synopsis and summary. So I have a lot of like out there theories that like this isn't my wheelhouse, but I watched this and thought of like all kinds of different things. So I'm going to do, I'll do some of those and just bounce them off you and you can tell me what you think about them. My first one is, and this really hit home when it got to Baharat is actually this hit me first, this idea when it, when uh, he wakes up with Imueri, that's her name. Yeah. I think they're all dead. And I think that this is hell or purgatory or something like that. Because she specifically says, I decided to come here when I lost my battle. When I realized the battle was over. She has cancer, right? Oh, screw me, man. I didn't even pick up on that. Then it hit me even harder, like just slap in the face, when I think that what they bring with them is somehow related to how they die or what their life was like on earth or something because of Bahara and his rope. And the symbolism is just so strong there with a black man and a rope. Well, but this also gives us the opportunity, based on your theory here, that um, that we have uh, 
the Don Quixote book. Yes, and that's what I can't really place. I can't well, figure out. Because Don Quixote, he's a knight errant. He is always doing like D- Don Quixote's goal in life is to be the honorable, like, justice giver. Um, obviously, he keeps failing for various reasons. That's kind of yep. like the comedic part of this. Um, well, comedic part of Don Quixote, not this not film. This film is not yeah. funny. It's not a funny <laughs> film. Um, but yeah, like, but the failures, I think that's, uh, yep. based on your theory, that makes a little bit more sense now why well, Don Quixote. And it also, like, it kind of fit in too when he, he says originally he came here because he needed to quit smoking. That's what it said. Right. He's talking to Trimagasi in the very beginning and he's like, why are you here? And he says, I volunteered to come here. I need to quit smoking and I need to read Don Quixote. Yeah. But the terminology, if I remember correctly, he doesn't say I want to quit smoking. He says I need to quit smoking. And then when he gets on the floor with Imueri, she talks about how like you volunteered to come here. You came here voluntarily. I think that they're talking about the fact that he's smoking. So in my like theory on they're all dead, he died from smoking this voluntary act and that's why he's there. And when she reveals her chest to him, yeah, this, like these injuries, these from injuries her. are clearly not like cancerous injuries you would like survive from, like yeah. living in they're any like open capacity. sores on her chest. Yeah, like yep. so. I can't believe I actually didn't pick up on that. I'm willing to admit that here, whatever in public. Trimagasi, yeah. I don't know, like how he dies if we're going on with this theory or any of the other characters, right? But. I don't know. I just thought that that was kind of an interesting way to kind of interpret the film. And so then Miharu and her daughter would have also died during like a yeah. colonial process of or, some yeah, sort. Or who knows, right? A car accident or something. I don't, right. It's not revealed like in the story. Yeah. I don't know. I couldn't make it fit perfectly, but it was still kind of an interesting But no thing. one under 16 was allowed to be there. True. Maybe that's be- – well, no. That means like maybe like there's this notion in – Innocence. Yeah, this yeah. innocence that you're – you know, you don't get to de- – like you don't go to hell or yep. purgatory if yep. you're of a certain age because you're – Well, the reason I, I think it's probably purgatory instead of hell, and I actually looked up Dante's Inferno and like read just to refresh yeah, the my memory levels. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that you earn your way out of it. Because they all have this time, right? That like, oh, I have a month left, Tree Magasi says. And he says like, different, they're like, I get out in a month. So what that made me think of is this accredited diploma that they never really talk about is an indulgence. You earn this diploma and that gets you out of purgatory. Super awesome. Yeah, I never took the religious slant on this. I'm willing to admit that. Like, that's sad that I never did, but I did so it, I had this theory going the whole time, but the end is basically what made me yeah. like feel like there's got to be something more going on. Because when he walks off the platform and walks into the darkness with Tree Magasi, we're left like, that's what made me think like, is he dead? Did he finally die? And so they're going off into like the nothing or whatever, right? And like what happens when you die in purgatory or in hell, whichever one we're going to go with here, right? So in Mueri, she chooses to commit suicide in purgatory. So where does she go? And she's there with Goreng. And then he essentially, the goal is to, yeah, by going to the bottom, he's basically given up. Right. So they're walking off into the darkness and he's never going to get out of purgatory. I think I was stuck looking at this politically for so long because it actually reminded me of some movies I was super into for weird reasons back in the like late 90s, early 2000s when I was an uh, undergraduate. Um, they were called Cube. No, yeah. And one of the things cube I read talked about Cube. Cube, two, cube yep. 3. Oh, one of the things you read even referenced this? Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I, I had no I idea. I hadn't seen Cube, so I didn't know what the reference was. But I immediately, was. And it, yeah, I immediately went back into, well, you never saw? No. I, it was, you, well, okay. I'm surprised I never made you watch them because it was around that time. Huh. Um, but anyway, um, 
it was around that time that we met. But anyway, back to the story. So like this Cube 1, Cube 2, Cube 3, those were, in my opinion, more – and maybe I'm wrong on these two now that I think about it. But those were more politically oriented uh, commentaries on human nature and working together and revolutionary processes and beating the system. Those ones were a little bit more, I think, blatant in that messaging and – the minute I saw like the first scene, my mind went to cube, and mm-hmm. that's why I guess I never looked at this like religiously. But yeah. but I think your theory holds a lot of water. Um, I really do. The other thing I thought that was super interesting when I you finally learned that the food is prepared on level zero, it made me start thinking like out of the box of like, is there something to the fact that it is level zero? Because we go down this mathematical, right? Like, is zero a real number or not? Is it imaginary? Is it so on? Like, does zero actually exist? Is it a placeholder, right? So then it's like, does the food even exist? Does level zero even exist? Are they all like, so is we this lost, some kind of mental construct? Is it? We lost track a little bit now that you're talking about numbers. Earlier, I had made this assessment just in this podcast, not while I was actually watching the film. But yes, if there are 333 floors, that means there are 666. And the floor stays, the platform moves 666 minutes, right? If you count the minutes at each floor. So, okay. 100%. We maybe we're over. Maybe we just wasted all this time talking politics and ideology and. I wanted to do that because that's the blatant, like obvious one that everyone's going to talk about. But I think there's more there if we dig under the surface a lot. Well, yeah, you did a pretty good job with that. Um, What was your other theory? So yeah, I mean, I think that that that's while you're looking at these. And maybe you're right. Maybe that's what we're supposed to be struck with initially. And there could be a commentary associating the political slash ideological slash systemic commentary with the spiritual like essentially like both are meant to be it's meant to be viewed in both ways and in this case that if we do don't necessarily address the issues of our and these are terms i used already earlier ethical flexibility and moral bankruptcy then we may find ourselves within this like again this kind of um, existential um, situation. Maybe there is some commentary there. Maybe it could be a cautionary tale. Maybe it could be a warning where we're trying to tie these two things together. Yeah, I like that. Or we live in hell now. Yes. That, I think, is more apt. Like, this is yeah, hell. Like, is modern hell. industrial society is hell. Yep. And that our brief dabbles in, I wouldn't even say, like, maybe even happiness, but, like, at least as far as our consumer culture is concerned, uh, our, our brief dabbling in in, in sadedness, in consumption, is like that's illusory. And that maybe Miharu and her search for her child, that real connection, that's the only place that maybe like, again, true happiness can exist. And maybe that also can't be attained in our system, which is why she's so miserable. Well, and I think the plot of Baharat is like, you will never make it to the top no matter how, how hard you try. The only way out is down. The only way, the only freedom is to go absolute to the bottom of our hellish society. You'll never get out of life alive. Yep. The only way out is death, is yeah. nothing, is etc. cetera. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just have other random quotes like um, when he first sees the woman come down on the platform, Trimagasi tells him anyone here can do whatever they want, right? So there are no rules because he's like, how can she ride the platform down? And he's like confused trying to figure out what's going on. Um, the other thing that I really like when they – Wake up on level 171, they hear all these screams of people waking up because they're on these levels where they're never going to survive and what are they going to do? And then someone jumps, right? This is a key point in the film. A body goes by. Right. And he says, was that a body? And Trimagasi is like, of course it was a body. 
And then he asked, like, basically, why would someone at the higher level jump down? And his answer is, at the top, you have nothing to look forward to. You have everything that you need. There's no desire there. There's nothing. So he's like, people are committing suicide even at the top. They're still unhappy. They're still unsatiated. They still... See, I thought that was more like Max Weber, Protestant work ethic thing, kind of like that even those at the top with everything, like, you know, that whole idea, they never stop working for some reason because, you know, they could purchase anything they want. So what keeps them working? Some might say it's their like humanitarian or, or, or whatever, like the humanitarian causes, they all like, you know, foundations they create and stuff like that. We all know that's kind of a joke if we're all honest with ourselves. They keep working because they don't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. The system has conditioned us in such a way that people, again, at the top of the proverbial pyramid, what, what, what are the Koch brothers, what are they doing? What is Bill Gates doing? What was Steve Jobs doing? Oh, they're innovating to make humanity, uh, make life better for humanity. No, none of those things are true. They're working because they just don't know any better. Oh, so here's his quote. He says, on the upper levels, you can eat anything you like, but you've got nothing to look forward to and a lot to think about. That was his exact quote on like... Yeah, and unless you have some sort of, again, you continue to to manufacture these goals, whatever these goals might be, these, uh, uh, to borrow from Teddy K, surrogate activities, unless you, uh, of course, manufacture these for yourself, then there is nothing left. You sometimes reach a point where there's nothing left. Yep. Okay, my other interpretation is something along the lines of the seven deadly sins. This really got into my mind when they're going down the levels, when they're like leading the quote-unquote revolution or whatever, and they get to the level with the money. The dude, this like weird looking guy with blue hair is sitting there just on piles of money. And it's clear that like what he chose to bring with him, if we're still going along with the choosing thing, is just piles of money. That's right. all he has. And then they go down the platform and he literally just throws money and it like rains down on them. Yeah. So that made me think. And then I started trying to dig of like other seven deadly sins. And the other one that I, th- I mean, there's a lot of them. Clearly. I mean, gluttony yeah, plays a huge obviously. role in this. Yeah. The one that was interesting though was lust because when he first wakes up with Baharat, the two, the couple, there's a couple on the level above him, the one that shit in his mouth. After the platform goes by, they start having sex. And you're left to wonder like, how could anyone possibly have sex in this environment and like all of this stuff? And they're just sitting there listening to them, these noises of them having sex. And that just made me think of lust and like, why would that be there if it wasn't for some kind of symbolism of that going on? You know what I mean? Greed's obvious. I'm trying yep. to think of what other ones. I'm a sloth there. Yeah, I don't know. That's one of the ones I couldn't really yeah. place. But maybe if I, I wanted to watch the film again, but I didn't have time. So yeah, viewers yeah. can let us know if you watch the film and you can make out the other seven deadly sins. Okay, so um, what else you got? I mean, we want to close this out with some general theories. I, we don't have conclusions. We actually want commentary on this one and a little back and forth. So if you are listening on YouTube, please leave us comments on this one on your theories uh, where we went wrong. Because again, we went out of our way just to watch it and not look at any other resources so that our opinions would be like as raw as possible here. Yep. Um, theories that we've thrown out uh, are the obvious ones regarding state, politics, ideology, revolutionary theory, um, socialism, communism, anarchism, capitalism. All of those like critiques or whatever commentaries on those ideas and and Nick threw one at me that I didn't pick up on I'm sure most of you did because I'm not smart when I watch movies and everybody else seems to be but yes this whole like very clear now that he's laid it out like religious uh, commentary about being either in purgatory or hell. Um, I think that's another good one and then of course when I heard that bridging the two that 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 
you actually can't separate the inequities of modern industrial society from the inequities of hell. And either this is a cautionary tale that this is where we're headed, or it is uh, basically a, a satirical critique of society now that this is hell. Yep. So, that, I mean, that's how we're going to kind of take this home. What are your thoughts, yeah. Nick? No, that's it. Uh, yeah, catch us online, revolutionideology.com. You can hit us on Twitter, at Rev and Ideology. Um, if you're not listening to this on YouTube, we have a YouTube channel where we post all of our content, uh, including other videos and stuff for the classes that we teach and just for entertainment purposes. Uh, if you like what we're doing, tell your friends about it. Leave us a review on your podcasting app, whatever that is. If you really like what we're doing, you can support us on Patreon. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later. <laughs>